Last week, we looked at the uh, ministry makeup of Paul the Apostle. And uh, particularly in the light that he was moving towards the end of his ministry time. So he was about as evolved as a leader as he was going to be as a church leader. And, and uh, you know, he didn't have many years to go. And he was, he was at that place where he had developed quite a lot and learned a lot of skills over the course of his ministry. And it was a really good time to see his address at Miletus before he heads towards Jerusalem at that stage of his development. And as we saw that, we saw four key traits, didn't we? We saw that he had a sense of vision in that he was always looking towards a new horizon. And, uh, you know, he was finished up in Asia Minor, finished up in, in, uh, in the Galatia and, and finished up in Greece and all these areas. And he was now looking further west into the Latin countries and starting with Rome and then moving west from there, you know. He, was always, had, he always had vision. We see that he, he valued integrity and he valued his strong ethical position wherever he ministered. And uh, how many know integrity and ethics matter, you know? It's not about being perf- perfect, it's about being transparent. And uh, there's a big, you know, it's, you know, perfection is miles beyond us. Transparency is within the range of all of us. And uh, so, you know, he was, uh, it's, it's integrity, strong ethical position. You know, don't rip anybody off, you know, and, and actually use his leadership not for gain, personal gain, but for the glory of God and for the extension of his kingdom. We also see that he has the heart of a shepherd, and uh, he took personal responsibility for the spiritual welfare of others. He had somebody's back at all times. And finally, the greatest personal trait that he had was that he was able to point people to Jesus at the end and let Jesus have the final authority and the final word. Yeah, he wasn't this codependent guy, guru. He was, when people came to him with need, the cross is that way. You know, and that's, that's the best way to be when we minister to people along the way. And Now, I concluded with the idea that although me and pastors across the whole world, for that matter, should display those traits, so should you as well. Because Bible, like New Testament is very clear that we are all ministers. We all have a ministry of reconciliation. We all have a message to share. We all have somebody to lead. And uh, so the, these traits that... You know, it's not about scrutinizing the pastor per se, although that's a good thing to do. But it's also about scrutinizing ourselves as well and seeing how fit am I to minister in my personal context. So that was last week. We're at the stage now where Paul and his entourage have finally made their way from Miletus to Jerusalem. And they've delivered the offering that has been taken up throughout the Gentile regions. And uh, they've now, uh, you know, over their last journey, they collected funds from all the, the European churches and Asian churches that they'd visited so far. And, and they all had a concern for the poverty-stricken Jewish Christians. And it was a great sign of solidarity in the entire worldwide church. They said, you know what? Out of Jerusalem came our faith. Back to Jerusalem comes the evidence of that. Great setting there. And, uh, but it's not long before, uh, it, before the local Jews in Jerusalem decide that they want to be rid of him. And the rest of Acts is dedicated to the legal proceedings which take him on a journey from Jerusalem to his final destination in Rome. In that time, he's going to make five defense speeches to varying audiences. And they're all going to have varying levels of power, influence and outlook. Over the course of it, you'll read, and in your own time, you'll read through these. We'll see Jews who are calling for his immediate execution because he dared to take the Jewish Messiah and make a ministry of winning over Gentiles. How dare he? We've got those from the Jewish elite in the, in the um, Sanhedrin. And they're at a place where they can't even agree on their, what they believe in, let alone work out what Paul is on about. You've got the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they're split. And we see to save his own skin, Paul is able to divide the crowd and get out of there, you know? 
Then we move on to Jeru- from Jerusalem with an armed detachment to Caesarea, where he is required to share his story with Governor Felix, and later on, followed by that, his successor, Governor Festus. And over a two-year period, he has many conversations with these two Roman officials. And now we get to the fifth defense, and that's the one we're going to explore today. It's found in chapter 25 of Acts, and uh, we will have it on screen to follow, but if you'd like to have the folding stuff in front of your hands, then uh, you know the crinkle of pages and stuff like that, it's good to touch your Bible and, and handle it, isn't it? So if you've got it, open up chapter 25 of Acts, and uh, we're going to start the verse in verse 13, and we're going to stay in Acts 25 and 26, so keep your thumb in there if you've got your Bibles. You should have your Bibles. Starting in verse 20, uh, 13. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, is there, a man here whom, there is a man here whom Felix has left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not, I did not delay the case but convened the course the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus whom Paul claimed to be alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked him asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for Caesar's de- for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, Tomorrow you shall hear him. There's a lot happening here. First up, we see the political scene of Jerusalem which might at first be a little bit confusing. So I'll bring us up to that. So the last time we read uh, 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 politically about the state of, 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 uh, of that region, we were hearing about Agrippa getting eaten by worms and dying, right? You know, that's the last time we were in Jerusalem. <laughs> now, that was a pretty full-on thing. When that occurred, the guy in our passage here, Marcus Julius Agrippa, or Agrippa II, was just 17 years old and was deemed far too young to run the volatile kingdom of his father that included the three regions of Israel. In his place, uh, procurators were, were appointed, and the first one was Antonius Felix. And then after that, we have Portius uh, Festus. Because Agrippa II had grown up in Rome and was actually a favorite of the empire, he was actually, even despite his youth, given a, less, a lesser kingdom to rule over northeast of Israel at the time. So Agrippa's arrival in Caesarea at this point was nothing more than a diplomatic visit. But it served as a good time for the newly placed governor to be able to consult someone more in the know about how to deal with Paul. We also see here an interesting attitude present, found first in Festus as he makes his introduction of Paul. And it's a glimpse into the mindset of a growing number of people in society today. It's those who have little to no experience with religious things. Effectively, his intro is this. There's a fellow that's hanging around where I work right now. He's been the butt of many jokes and the recipient of some pretty harsh treatment from the locals. In fact, they pretty much want to be rid of him. I was expecting their disdain would be about some full-on crime, but instead I found out their problem is that he's religious and he isn't seeing things the same way as the rest of the world around him. 
as I got around him and did some digging I found this was all about some guy named Jesus who apparently was dead but isn't anymore and frankly I've got no clue how to deal with what I'm hearing from him as well as from the public perception of him that's the situation he's in right now you know we live in a world where the awareness of Jesus Christ is getting a little bit lower have you noticed that just a few generations ago going to church was a strong cultural thing with entire families making the weekly pilgrimage to a church somewhere maybe a generation ago almost every kid went to Sunday school didn't they I understand that this assembly had a pretty rocking kids program at some point a number of years ago our church in Sydney had several hundred kids coming to a Sunday school program and just that every church that has a bit of longevity in the nation has, has stories of a Sunday school heyday that they ex- experienced at some point in their church life. But because they got bundled off and the parents stayed home, it seems that we saw the last of them when they were old enough to choose not to come. Today, mentioning Jesus within a group of teenagers gets some very ignorant responses. In fact, you just had to be at youth on Friday night to actually go, what does Jesus mean to you? And outside of our own church kids, thank God they had a clue, they, we see outside of that, only a couple of the kids were able to roughly and as a vague guess associate Jesus with the cross. The ignorance is, is just not there. Like they're kind of, most people thought most of the crowd are still grappling with whether he was even a real person or not. We shouldn't be too dismayed by that as if we're experiencing a social low. It was the same in Israel just a couple of decades after the death of Jesus here. Festus, as governor of the Holy Land, had no clue about Jesus Christ, just one generation removed from the incident that changed the world. And as a result, he had no idea how to process the things he was being told. You know what? Every generation is responsible for the next to make sure that we have an unbroken line of communication from the gospel you know, continuing on. You know, we are just one generation from, from, from disappearing, the whole church worldwide. We need to be aware of this, that the awareness of Jesus can stop with generations, and we've got to take responsibility for that. Agrippa wasn't much better off. As we read around this text, we can see that he had some familiarity with the God of Israel. Earlier in the series, I spoke about his father, which I spoke to about before. We know that his dad kept up the appearance of Judaism whenever he hung around Israel. But outside of there, he wasn't, right? In fact, he was an Edomite. He was actually a descendant of Esau, not a descendant of Jacob, which meant that the people of Israel had no reason to like him. And yet he would shed a tear while reading scripture in their temple. And the people would shout out, you are our brother also. That's how convincing this guy was in front of the Jewish audience he was a very convincing guy and yet when he visited Rome he was every bit the pagan Roman we know that he wasn't devoted a devoted Jew at home or abroad young Marcus Agrippa, Agrippa here no doubt would have attended with his father but at home all he would have seen was hypocrisy both of these men had a perception that God wasn't real. From the accusing Jews, Festus had no idea how to work through the concept because it all came across too complicated. How many know we can complicate people out of church and away from God? And from personal experience, Marcus Agrippa saw the form but not the power in his father. 
And that's where many unchurched people are coming from today. They see, a church, they see people around them that has a form but no power. They got a religious exterior but nothing going on on the inside. Or they have people that, that just make it too complicated for them to actually be part of what's going on. Now fortunately for us, Paul was the guy on trial. And in the background, he was preparing for a defense to that very audience. And from the start of chapter 26, we begin to see the, the opening statements of that defense. So we're going to pick up chapter 16 and keep reading on here. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should, you cons- why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to, be, ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Stop it there for a moment. To reach people like Festus and Agrippa, you need to present a God and a faith that is truly real. Something that is real. Something that they can put their hands on and go, I got it. Real enough to believe in and be rewarded for doing so. Real enough to interact with. Real enough to cause a man to change because of it. And to demonstrate just how real this faith is to us, Paul has shown here and many other times throughout Acts the best strategy possible to do that. And that strategy is simple. Share your testimony. Your personal story is probably the most real thing that you can communicate. It is something that you can remember the most because of the personal impact. And it's something that you can present with the greatest of conviction because of personal experience. It is unique to you and an incredibly powerful item in your arsenal of evangelism tools. And Paul shows us in his address to Agrippa the key elements that we should take on when getting our personal testimony together as a ready defense for our faith. The first element of our testimony is acknowledging what you were before Christ, what I once was. And as we've just read that last portion, that's what Paul is doing here. This is what I was. I was a somewhat religious guy. I lived with a certain hope that was based more on my own work and behavior than anything God could do in me. And out of that false confidence, I rejected anyone who would tell me otherwise, including Jesus and those that spoke up for him. 
That rejection led to extreme measures where I sought to rid the world of Jesus, even to the point of torturing and executing his messengers. That's Paul's story. What's yours? What's mine? Where have you come from? What ideals did you hold? What viewpoints did you embrace and how did it affect the way you lived? That's a great place to start as you consider the work that Jesus has done in us. In Deuteronomy, we see many times alluded, but five, phrases, five sentences spoken straight out. The point says this, God speaking, remember that you were once slaves in Egypt. God actually wants us to remember where we came from. It's actually good practice to remember where you were before your faith. Not through the lens of glory days. Oh man, I partied hard. You should have seen it. It's not about creating hero worship here. But through the lens, in God's words, to remember the slavery that we came with that. The Bible says, he who sins is a slave to sin. We need to understand the slavery of the sin that we're in. Paul was aware of his own pre-Christ prison of sin. And we need to be clearly aware of what ours was too. So we can share it, but also so we can avoid it. This element of our testimony doesn't need to be contrived or manufactured to try and make yourself the devil incarnate. It just needs to be a real understanding that you were once in a place where you were in a wrong position before God because of your sin. And every one of us who knows Christ can attest to that fact. I was once lost. I was once a slave to my own sin. So what I once was. The next element is the most important one. We see this from verse 12. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the high priests, of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue, rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles, and I am sending you to them uh, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The next element is clear here and needs to include two key words. Then Jesus. This is what I once was. Then Jesus. There was a pivotal point in Paul's journey that changed him forever and it set his life in a whole new direction. That point was when Jesus appointed a time where his sinfulness would be confronted and he would be given a chance to repent. Paul makes great detail about this particular moment of his life. I was all that. Then Jesus interrupted the path I was taking. We see that story throughout the Gospels, don't we? And we see it even in today's stories, don't we? Think of Matthew. I was selling out my own people, ripping them off through tax collection. Then Jesus. Think of Bartimaeus. I was outside my own hometown, blind and begging. But then Jesus. 
Think of Peter. I was just doing life, working hard and wondering if there's more than what I'm doing now. Then Jesus. Think of myself. I was a kid with all sorts of hassles going on. Then one day I entered a random department store Anvil elevator. Then Jesus. This is an essential part of any testimony. In fact, if you can't relate the very moment that Jesus intervened in your life, give us a chance to address that later in the service. If you don't have a then Jesus moment to report, our testimony comes short. Now, I've heard statements say that if you don't remember the day of your salvation, you can't be saved. I don't ascribe to that idea. I, there's a point, you know, what some of us gave our life to Christ when we were little children. We can't remember the date, whether it was April 14th or whatever else, but we know that it happened. You know, if there's a moment that we know that it occurred in our life, we can't just leave that to chance. All right, it's not about remembering dates and times and locations, but you know that you know that Jesus came into your life. You had a then Jesus moment. The final element is when we read from verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all in Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. This is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me, but God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Leave it there for a minute. See, once we remember and we relate our past, and once we recognize our personal then-Jesus moment, we can then talk about the difference it has made. The third element is simple. It's what Jesus has and continues, continues to do in and through me. What is the difference in my life? Paul acknowledges here a totally different way of life once it becomes propelled by Jesus. It's one that's taken him all over the world and has compelled and propelled him to share what has happened to him and, anyone, to, and to anyone who would listen. He is supernaturally empowered to share a gospel message that transcends all racial and social boundaries and is backed up with great signs from Jesus himself. Can you imagine that? The words that uttered hatred towards the messengers of Jesus ends up becoming the key messenger of Jesus. The one who was speaking murder started speaking life eternal. What a transformation this guy went through. The question we should all be asking ourselves on a regular basis is this. What difference is Jesus making in my life today? Not just what happened 20 years ago, my case 25 years. What continues to be different even today? Paul was able to share not just the moment and how things changed immediately, but over a period of time, the ministry and the people and the things that went on. Galatians 5 tells us this, The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit 
is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Romans 12.2 says, Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good and pleasing perfect, pleasing and perfect will. I actually did that. That's a foundry pour because that's the, actually the image that Paul had in his mind for that. Don't be conformed like a coin getting smashed into a mold, but instead be transformed. Fruit and transformation. It was a biblical expectation that our lives will be different and display different traits because of our association with Jesus Christ. Fruit is the evidence of what gets sown. And our spirit is supposed to produce evidence of the things that we have sown into it or allowed into it. And Paul tells us here that there is good fruit that comes out when we allow Jesus in. When we, sow, when we allow Jesus to sow his spirit in our life, good things come out. And when that good fruit comes out, we've got a story to tell. One that testifies to the transforming work that Jesus is doing within us. And this is the bit that makes your testimony real. I overheard someone having a conversation, someone in our church, with someone close to them, and they actually said this, haven't you seen the difference? And the person that was talking to them said, yes. That's a testimony right there. So there we have it, the key elements of your testimony right there. What I once was, then Jesus and the difference he has made in my life this takes us back to a key verse I used late last year in 1 Peter 3.15 always be prepared to give your answer to anyone, everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have you don't have to be a scholar to make a strong case for Jesus Christ you don't have to know every key verse of the Romans road or be able to memorize every alpha session or be able to expertly expound all the different conversations that we've read about in the book of Acts over this series in order to present the gospel of Jesus Christ you can do a whole lot of good with your personal story Paul sat in front of a bunch of incredibly bright minds as he makes the address we read today he has the, he's had the highest and brightest minds of the Sanhedrin presenting their case against him. And he's been cross-examined for over two years by two governors. And he's now standing before a regal figure, the son of the one who killed the Apostle James and imprisoned Peter. More than a decade before, and the great-grandson of the one who tried to kill Jesus in his infancy. And despite all the intellect, despite all the rank, despite all the power that was sitting before him, he bypasses his intelligent arguments and reasoning and instead selects the realest and the strongest case he knows to share. His own experience of Jesus. It's time for our communion. Bring the elements front and center. Can I ask you to, to begin to reflect on these three things in your own life? 
reflect on where your life once was. I was once a slave in Egypt. I was once a slave to my old sinful ways. Can I ask you to reflect on the day you made Jesus Lord? What happened that day that caused me to look and yield to Jesus? And can I ask you to reflect on the fruit so far? What's different today? Is it evident to me? Is it evident to others? If we get those three things together and reflect on those things, the people will see a gospel message that is truly real and powerful today. Let me encourage you, get a pen and paper and reflect in your own time. In your own devotion time, ask Jesus to remind you of where you've come from and where, where you're going in him. Remember the great things that he's done in our life and be able to have them down somehow and prepare our hearts and prepare ourselves to be able to share those things. Get some thoughts down, have it ready. By doing that, you're going to be doing what Peter says. And by that, you'll be prepared and you'll have reasons for your personal hope. I'm going to wind up there. We're going to come around a time of communion. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt. Five times in Deuteronomy, that is said. And even as early as that, the Passover was was instituted and, and the, the, the feasts and the times that, that pointed towards Christ even then. And that at a Passover, Jesus comes and shares over the Lord's table. Instead of being a slave in Egypt, instead he's saying, you know what, I'm giving my life as a ransom for many. I'm setting people free from the freedom from the slavery of sin. My blood will be shed. People will know me. People will be made free by the work of the cross. Their sins will be forgiven. They will be, they will be, they, you know, they, even in judgment, they will be passed over. Instead, they'll be making heaven their home. This is a beautiful picture of what the work of the cross has done for us. But it made us free of the slavery of sin right here as we remember this. So let's, let's pray. Let's close our eyes. Let's get into that God moment for a bit.